Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Soul Fed Podcast. Of course, you can look us up at soulfed.com. Soul Fed is like the Netflix of wellness. We work with licensed therapists, wellness coaches, nutritionists, fitness instructors, and we make on-demand videos and workshops that help you live your best life. So today on the show, we have Darlene Lancer, licensed marriage and family therapist. Darlene has been specializing in relationships and codependencies in her private clinical practice, and she has treated people for over 30 years and coaches internationally. You guys, this talk is amazing, and you're not going to want to miss a minute of it. So without further ado, here we go with narcissism and codependency. Okay, so well, thank you, Darlene, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you um, for having me. Thanks for coming. I just, you know, I, I really wanted to get into, I know that you've written 10 books and one of them is Codependency for Dummies, which I love. I love that. Um, I know that you have a very specific focus in codependency and narcissism. Can you kind of like lead us onto like what brought you into this journey and how you kind of got to this point in your career? Sure. Well, first of all, I have narcissists in my family, number one. Um, but so that created some wounding in my childhood. So I ended up marrying an alcoholic with a personality disorder and did a lot of work on myself and turned that relationship uh, around, but eventually left it. And uh, I have to say, I left it because I was stronger and I was happy, not because I was unhappy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you were happy and you decided that it wasn't working with him? The relationship like wasn't adding to my life. It was like a de mm. the only thing that was detracting in my life. Oh, interesting. So, um, and I, of course, along the way, I did a lot of therapy and I started uh, blogging and uh, it was a career change for me too. Over 30 years ago, I left practice of law and became a psychotherapist which is what I originally wanted to do. And I think my codependency is what got me off my soul path. Speaking of, you know, soul fit. So I was um, kind of detouring. And then I got back on as I was recovering myself and reclaiming myself in my marriage and working on myself, I realized more and more that my career was out of alignment with who I was. And then I got back to what I originally wanted to do was to be uh, a therapist and an author actually. But I started off as a, a, a therapist and eventually I started writing and blogging and um, Wiley Publishing that does uh, Dummies series, that's up behind me. Um, they asked me to write a book, Codependency for Dummies. And I had to compete with some other authors or therapists or something. And when they asked me, I hadn't focused on codependency uh, consciously, but when I thought about it and created an outline for the book, I realized that was what I was doing with my clients. And, and why did they reach out to you if codependency they, yeah, wasn't your conscious focus? I wrote a blog about it. Oh, I, I see. I see. Okay. One of many blogs. I think I was writing about self-esteem and I had 
anyway, so so they you know gave me the contract, and I realized that I had been doing that at that time. Well, from years past, codependency wasn't as popular a term as it is now, and I think it was right for them to um, to see that that was missing in the market because some younger people had never heard of that concept that we're writing me and they, they just discovered it for the first time. Well, Anyways, speaking uh, of discovering it for the first time, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can you kind of go through codependency for our listeners? Like what is codependency, what it's about? I, I feel like I, I kind of lightly know about these two topics, but I feel like uh, narcissism and codependency are connected. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it to you. Take it away, Darlene. Well, I would say codependents are not narcissistic enough. It's one of the reasons they're attracted to the, you know, the traits that they're missing. Oh. So if you use narcissism and narcissistic as a generic term, not as a personality disorder, you know, they need to have put themselves first more. They need to have more ambition. They need to be bolder, you know, more decisive. A lot of the things that you see in, in, in the grandiose type of narcissist. But anyway, uh, a codependent is someone whose thinking and behavior revolves around something outside of themselves. So it could be a person, it could be a drug, a process like gambling or food addiction, sex addiction. So that's my definition. It's really a disorder of the self. Mm. So it's a misconception to think I'm only codependent in a relationship because the primary relationship is with yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of times people leave an abuser and they find out the abuser is them. They, they, they self-abuse a lot. Oh, wow. That's so, powerful. And where does that come from? Childhood. Yeah. yeah. So it all goes is back that to, having a narcissistic parent? Not necessarily, but a dysfunctional family. It could be uh, depression. Uh, it's some kind of trauma or just the parents are not um, connected to their feelings and not marrying the child. It comes from uh, a trauma of shame and emotional abandonment. So after I wrote the Dummies book, Hazelden, who is the biggest publisher in the field of addiction and recovery, they asked me to write this book over there, (laughs) uh, Shame and Codependency. And because I wrote a blog, um, shame is the core of addiction. So they saw that and they wanted it to apply to codependency. And they had published Breen Brown's book on on shame Mm -hmm. and they wanted me to apply it to codependency. So I did and got much deeper into the psychology of it because she's she's not a psychologist, she's a researcher Mm -hmm. and how it shows up in relationships. And so shame underlies narcissism and codependency and yeah, for codependence. That's one of the things that, but it manifests differently. So codependents will think they're not enough and narcissists think other people are not enough. So they put down others and codependents put down themselves. Interesting. So naturally those two come together. Um, So what, so you were saying that it manifests in relationships. How does codependency manifest in relationships? Right. So there's five core symptoms in my estimation. One is dysfunctional communication dysfunctional boundaries, shame causes low self-esteem. There's also issues around control. So either advising people 
controlling other people, managing them. It started off the the term and terminology was with families of addicts, mm-hmm. and usually the they used to call it a co-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So the partner was always trying to fix and and help the addict and the alcoholic. A lot of control issues. But if you take away the other person, there's a lot of self-control and a lot of shoulds. And um, so just uh, codependents have a lot of issues with control, sometimes from an over-controlling parent. What do you mean by issues? Like they don't like control or they want more control in their life or? Both. both. They may not (laughs) do well if someone tells them what to do. They'll be very rebellious. Interesting. Or, or they'll control other people or control themselves. That seems so out of the definition of what a codependent is, because you think that if a codependent is always putting other people before them, you would think that they would like control would go hand in hand. They would want to be controlled. That would be part of it. Well, they might control themselves or their children, or it might be displaced. So if they can't control their spouse, they'll be controlling with their children or just re- controlling their emotions. So that gets into denial as a core feature with both. A lot of these apply in my book, um, Dating, Loving, and nar- uh, uh, Leaving a Narcissist, I mm-hmm. compare all the symptoms between narcissists and codependents. So- uh, Can you go uh, through some of them right now? Yeah, so both have dysfunctional communication. So a narcissist often is more aggressive where a codependent is usually more passive, although they may be aggressive too. They may be um, nagging and and blaming and uh, attacking also, scolding. And then dysfunctional communication. That's what I was just naming that. Boundaries. So um, codependents have difficulty in uh, separating themselves from others, whereas narcissists have difficulty even seeing others. They project themselves onto others. Hmm. There are no boundaries there. So they see don't see others as separate from themselves. And codependence, it's the inverse or the converse. They don't see themselves as separate from others. Hmm. So they feel responsible for other people's feelings and other people's needs. Uh, they have trouble saying no, you know, where a narcissist will easily do that. They'll be provocative. And denial. They both have shame and they often deny their shame. Even in my own case, I thought I had pretty high self-esteem, but I didn't realize I was in denial that there was shame underneath. The shame of what was the shame about? Not feeling, you know, good enough. So if you don't feel worthy of love, you're not going to find somebody who's loving you. You'll find someone who is unavailable or someone who's abusive who treats you the way you feel about yourself basically exactly yeah it mirrors your relationship mirror your relationship with yourself to a great extent so they both have problems with the intimacy so someone who is always in a relationship with uh, someone who's unavailable they may not realize that they have intimacy issues because they always think it's the other person but then someone wants to be intimate with them and they feel smothered or they feel exposed in some way. They're afraid. Another aspect of this dysfunctional communication is afraid to be honest and vulnerable. Both 
more, you know, for sure with a narcissist, he never wants to appear weak or vulnerable. But often codependents have issues with exposing themselves because they fear being judged because of the shame. So shame causes problems in communication. But often I have a whole chapter on relationships in my book on shame. So one partner will attack and another, well, first of all, uh, shame is triggered when you feel like there's um, a danger to the self. So an assault uh, to the integrity of this psyche, let's say. So if you feel uh, criticized in a way that something specific to you uh, is very important, like maybe your appearance and someone says, you know, you're fat or you don't look good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Put some makeup on or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it could be benign, but it hits you as like, and then it triggers this shame. And then you would either probably withdraw or attack. Those are the and attack yourself, you know, that I'm, I'm just unattractive or I'll never meet anybody. It's really interesting that you put it that way, because that's perfect that it's, you know, a threat to yourself, because I know when I've felt shame before, um, it just, it's like soul crushing. Like it feels like you're dying inside. Exactly. And that is the worst. It's like the most painful emotion. Yes. People are in denial of it, of a lot. And they um, aren't aware of it because it not only alienates you from other people, where you feel like an alien, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's why it's called narcissistic shame. It has nothing to do with narcissism, but it means it's unique to you. So it's not just like I'm of a, a class or a race that is um, looked down on. At least we know we're part of a group. But narcissistic shame, there's something wrong with me that Mm. I'm uniquely uh, despicable or messed up, broken. And and people will see, they can look right through me and they can see that I have these flaws, whatever it is uniquely to you. It could be, you know, your intelligence. It could be, as I said, your uh, attractiveness. It could be your ability to be confident or successful or creative or, you know, whatever it is in your mind. And so those are also trauma reactions. So it starts in childhood where if you feel shamed by a parent and it doesn't have to be expressed, a parent doesn't have to say, oh, you're, you'll never meet anybody or you know, you're just a bad person. Parents often do that, I'm discovering, but it just could be- Especially back in the eighties and nineties when I grew up, I feel like that was the thing back then. I'm like, yeah, that, that just sounds normal. I- <laughs> You're a bad girl. <laughs> bad girl. Bad girl. Shame on you. <laughs> so, no more shame. I've had enough for a lifetime. I'm over yeah. that. I'm done with yeah. that. And then some religions and cultures use it as a way to, in their mind, to socialize a child. And especially in collectivist cultures, in Latin America, Asia, Middle East, Russia. It's, it's a very controlling tool, isn't it? Like, you know, you shame someone so that they won't do it. Like, oh my God, don't embarrass me by doing this. Or I can't believe you did that. What are people going to think or whatever? It's very controlling. It like, it brings people in. And especially when you're young, I can see how they would use that as a tool. Well, for I have a lot of examples in my book, for instance, in, in South Korea, um, it's considered a shame on the family if you don't get into a higher 
pass your exams and get into a higher, um, you know, like college or, or school. Yeah. There's been a lot of suicides because of that. Yes. In Greece, where my family's from, I used to go visit my relatives and it was the same thing. They put so much pressure on these kids to do these tests that span your entire education. And if you don't do well and you fail, you don't get into college. And so many kids committed suicide because of the pressure of that. Like, it's crazy. That's so sad. I know. And then, you know, in some countries do it. Like I had a, a client that was from the Soviet Union and, and the whole school would shame her. I have had clients from Latin America where, uh, and she was being abused at home mm. and she wasn't doing well on her class, in her exams. And so the teacher brought her up in front of the class and told everyone to call her a dummy. I mean. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's not very helpful. Oh. So. Um, that's why we need to pay our educators more so that we can get people who are like, who have the right skill set to teach our kids. Well, shame does socialize, you know, if you do something, if you defecate in public and. You right. Know, There's a purpose for it, phone, right? Yeah. There's you a talk purpose your, for it. Yeah. If yeah. you talk on your cell phone in church or something, people are going to look at you and give you shaming yeah. comments. So but, it's like we're very tribal. So from the beginning of time, right. Isn't that kind of the thing like shame yeah. was injected. So it's like, okay, if you murder somebody, we're going to remove you from Absolutely. the village. Or... I was going to tell you that. And then, and then the, the criminal would go off and they didn't need to kill him. They would just die. Wow. Because of the because shame. Of the shame? Would, really? Would wow. They would just go off and, and uh, maybe not everyone, but you know, that's, that's the, yeah, because we're social animals, even the most introverted of us, I believe. I mean, we still need some social conditioning, you know, I mean, that's kind of why I've been worried about, I think that's why there's been all this worry about COVID and, you know, kids who are staying at home and not socializing and what effect is this going to have on them in 10 or 20 years? Mm -hmm. So, but that's another topic, but anyway, go on, continue, please. So, okay. So, so those are also trauma reactions. So, a narcissist, their core is shame. Most of the time, they're not aware of it. Now, there's the extroverted narcissist, the grandiose that most people think of like in the public eye. And then mm -hmm. there's the covert narcissist or the, the vulnerable narcissist. So they're more conscious of their shame and they're very moody um, and, and feeling like a victim all the time. And they're really difficult to live with. But all of the symptoms of narcissism, you could say, go back to shame because they need a lot of attention. They need a lot of admiration to boost up their self-esteem. And it's never ending. So, so you can say how great they are and an hour later, they need to hear it again. So does and narcissism usually occur because of some traumatic event that happened in somebody's life? Well, you know, the research is inconclusive. It looks like there also is like a 50% hereditary factor. So okay. that's part of it. And then, uh, yes, you know, tra trauma in uh, parenting. Mm -hmm. And then there's also situations where parents never discipline the child. He gets whatever he wants or she gets a pass on everything. So she feels entitled and there's never any consequences. So mirroring is very important and teaching kids that they have an impact. Their words, their feelings have an impact on you. 
But if parents don't show that, uh, whether you're codependent or a narcissist or some other, you know, mental illness, uh, you don't know that. And every child needs to feel like their love for who they are, not conditional love, not for doing their chores or getting A's or looking beautiful or being athletic, that who they are with all their flaws is still lovable. And it's not, the words alone are not enough. A parent has to be interested in them, to spend time with them, want a relationship with them. So you can't dial it in and you can't outsource it to you know, a nanny or something. It has to come from par your parents. And even if one parent gives you that, there's still the other parent that you didn't measure up to. You weren't important enough. So sometimes a divorce can be a trauma and then you don't see the other parents. So you feel that you weren't important, you're neglected. But it sounds like there's a balance here of what you're saying between like, you know, you need to let your kids know that no matter what, you love them, you're here to support them, but also like you need to socialize your kids too and let them know when they do something wrong that that's not, or that's not okay. You know, and that's how you have to deal with the narcissist. So a parent that withdraws love, that's mm -hmm. like the worst. So it's just about you do this and this is the consequence. It's not okay. If you keep doing it, there'll be a consequence. And you have to talk, educate a narcissist the same way. So um, people make a lot of mistakes. It just comes naturally when they get blamed or criticized by a narcissist. They want to defend themselves. They want to. Uh, or they go on the attack, they argue, they explain. Uh, none of that is helpful. It just gives more power to the narcissist because they don't feel safe. They don't feel adequate. And the, they've learned the way to stay safe is to have power. So a narcissist will prioritize power and sacrifice the relationship to get it. Codependent. So Sorry, I just to interject here. So that so that sounds interesting because when you talk about power, the first thing that comes to my head is control. And I just wonder if there's like a correlation between like narcissism and things like OCD. I don't you know, where it's like where it's like, you know, there's like a controlling aspect in OCD, right? You need to have everything controlled. I was just curious. Not okay. knowledge, but per perfectionism. Yeah, they perfectionism. Want to be perfect, and the worst is a perfect. I wrote a book on overcoming perfectionism because it's a common trait among codependents. Mm. But narcissists take it to another level because they have to be perfect. Everything they they are the best, you know, the greatest. That's part of their grandiosity. So they can't allow any chink in their armor. As I said, their shame. Uh, perfectionism is defense is a defense to shame. So that's why it applies to both personalities. Um, so, but narcissists not only think want to be perfect themselves, they want everybody, their partners to be perfect. And that's hell because you'll never satisfy them because that's the point. They always will find some something because they don't feel enough. They don't feel good enough inside. And it's, and people like make relentless effort to appease the narcissist and meet their demands. They unwittingly are giving over their power and they don't know that it'll never happen. Maybe they'll get crumbs of kindness or gestures of affection, 
and they keep and it becomes addictive process like playing a slot machine for an occasional win and they and then it gets harder and harder to leave because of this addictive process the so if you sorry go ahead the difference is that a codependent will prioritize the relationship and sacrifice themselves to keep it so one is prioritizing power and then that starts in childhood by the way dealing with shame all this like links together and I've researched and written books on all three subjects. So I really understand the dynamics. So in childhood, um, children will find ways to survive and cope. So there's basically three and I go into it in the book on shame and also in the dummies book more briefly, but depending on your personality and the environment. Uh, so a codependent will seek to relate and be close to feel safe. So if I give mother or father what they want, they won't be angry with me and they'll love me and then I'll be safe. So they learn to accommodate and that's their personality style. So a narcissist will think if I have power, nobody can hurt me. So I'm gonna be strong and uh, maybe be a rebel or something. There's a third uh, type, and that could be a narcissist. Some codependents have some of this too. And that is, I call it the bystander. So they just kind of withdraw from the family and they're kind of a witness to everything. And they don't want to get too involved in anything. And they don't like having, being controlled either. They just, they're afraid to get too close to anybody because they don't want to be controlled. So and this is a, an aspect of narcissism, did you no. say? No, this is, there's three personality styles oh, okay. that adapt in childhood when you feel insecure in the house or there's trauma or you feel like shame, it's not safe, you don't feel really loved. Those are basically, you move towards people, you with, move away from people or you move against people. So you move toward them to connect like an accommodating codependent. You move against them like uh, a rebel or a narcissist. Not everybody who is that way is a narcissist, but those are the three patterns. Or you withdraw. And then I call it like a bystander. Now, healthy personality has combinations of all. Sometimes you're more aggressive and sometimes you stand back and sometimes you accommodate and you make it a conscious decision. It doesn't feel like a compulsion and that's the only thing you always do. So uh, the problem is people with a codependency or narcissism, they get locked into these patterns and that's all they know. So if you're a partner of a narcissist, how do you cope with that? Okay, well, the first thing is learning everything you can about the illness and the inner, not just on the outside, but the inner workings to really understand the limitations of who you're dealing with. Because for instance, normally by four years old, uh, a child knows, oh, mommy, that is you and I'm me, that we're separate. A narcissist never makes that developmental step. So they always see others as extensions of themselves. They think you should be able Sorry, to- Sorry, I, I kind of don't understand that. Um, can you clarify that? When they see other people as extensions of themselves, what does that mean? Like they- Okay. It goes along with their inability to empathize, which is a core trait. Okay. So they don't see you as having feelings and needs. It's like you're a, 
Uh, You're more like chattel, their their property. Uh, you could say it like an object or two-dimensional. Okay. Like, you know, uh, a doll or something. And okay. uh, there's no interior. They're not connected to their own interior. So they think that you uh, should understand them. And they don't. And going back to what I said before, they don't realize the impact of their behavior, that what they do impacts other people. Mm. Like, you know, a, someone who's an accommodator will think they go the opposite extreme before I say or do something. How are they going to react? Because the codependent, their thinking and behavior revolve around someone else. The narcissist, the opposite is they don't care about, they don't even think about the impact of their behavior. It's just what I want, when I want it, now. And what happens if you confront a narcissist about their behavior? Will they believe you? Have you? Yeah, you have to confront them, but you have to do it in a certain way, educative, because like I said, they have so much shame. Any slight criticism, they could go into a rage, which is the defense to the shame. They go on the attack because like you said, like their soul or their psyche now is under attack and they will push their, their habit is to push back. Some will withdraw. They may not talk to you for days at a time. So you have to do it. And I have a lot of scripts in my book and strategies and pointers. And you have to do it in a way that is um, neutral and not filled with emotion. Just, you know, very assertive and say, look, you know, when you um, don't help with the children, for instance, you know, then then when you ask me to go to your office party, I it's hard for me. I want to, but it makes me hard, uh, makes it hard for me to want to meet your needs because I feel like I have no help around the house. Mm -hmm. I have no help with the children. And this is, it has to work for both of us. This has to be a two-way street. They don't, oh, the other thing is for them, relationships are like business tra transactions. So you have to understand that too. So they want to get what they need and what they want at the lowest cost. It's always how little do I have to spend to get what I want? It's like do they own. ever really love the other person? Well, I go into that in the book too. Okay. That was a question. My mother was a narcissist, and I would wonder, did she, does she love me? And I go through a lot of questions uh, that you can ask. The first is, are you defining it from the point of view? of the lover or the lovey and more and more importantly how do you define love mm -hmm. so there's been it's it's difficult to assess and define but there's been research into how do people what makes people feel loved because you can't really quantify it yeah so there's a checklist there to see if you feel loved and uh and how is it which book is this i may have to buy it i have so many oh, questions this is, this is the one uh, uh Dating here, hold it up. Yeah. Oh, this one. I'm yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Perfect. Go ahead and say it for our audience for the audio. Dating, loving, and leaving a narcissist: essential tools for improving or leaving narcissistic and abusive relationships. So, by the way, this book applies if you um, involved with any kind of abuser, addict, borderline personality. It's the same because any abuser will fit some of the same profile. They may not fit all of the criteria for a narcissist. It doesn't matter. There's a, a long chapter on abuse 
and also on communication and uh, and how to deal with that and what to say, you know, with scripts and things like that. Because any abuser, it's about power. And, and along with that, facts get in the way. So every time you try to explain and something like that, you lose the argument because it's about power, not about the facts. You could be right and still lose. It doesn't matter. So you have to learn how to engage and how to phrase things in terms of what they want. Because as I said, they will do things that are in their self-interest. We have to make it in their self-interest to meet your needs too. Interesting. Uh, so you so, have to put it in the lingo of meeting their self-interest in order for them to really hear you? Well, you know, they have something in education now called authentic teaching. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they, they're learning that to raise kids' performance, <clears throat> that they have to teach when they mean authentically is in the language and culture that the child understands. And then they do better. So, and I uh, studied dance for many years and I once had this uh, terrific teacher and she would teach in the mode that the student could understand. So <clears throat> some people could watch a video and they'd learn right away the steps. I could never do that. So some people are visual learners. I'm more audio, so I'd have to count it and you know, have it described. And then I remember there was one time when I, I just couldn't catch on what she was saying. And then she said, well, take this attitude. So then that was a kinesthetic or uh, emotional kind of approach. And then my body fell into place immediately because I'm very emotionally tuned in. So you, you teach in the way that the person learns. Mm. So the same with a narcissist, same with your children. Um, and, and, and some narcissists, I mean, I should really point out that narcissism exists on a continuum. So some narcissists are interested in your feelings. They might feel guilty and sorry that they hurt you and you can work with them better. Uh, others, on the other extreme case, you have a malignant narcissist who has no remorse, maybe breaks the law, lies all the time, and is cruel and uh, treacherous in their behavior. And they have more sociopathic qualities and they're less likely to make any changes at all. But if you go through the steps in my book, and it's more than communication, because it's very important to detach and not take things personally. You have to really understand who you're dealing with and then um, have different, adjust your expectations. Because people say, I did all this for my husband or my wife. And then I ask like one thing and they can't do it. Well, that is like, that's a ridiculous proposition to begin with. It doesn't matter how much you do. They're not going to do it just because you did something for them, unless you explain that I'm not going to do these things for you, unless it's a two-way street. You do it for me. So they don't think, they're not interested in self-sacrificing. They're interested in power. Mm -hmm. So you have to think like a narcissist to be able to communicate with them. And mm -hmm. relationships, I have a lot of cases where the relationship improves. 
And the other thing is these relationships are hard to leave. Funnily enough, that a relationship that is abusive, often because of trauma bonds and things that I, I go into in the book, like intermittent reinforcement, like I was talking about the slot machine waiting for that crumb uh, that once in a while happens, becomes addictive. It becomes hard to leave. Can you talk a little bit about trauma bonds just for our viewers, like what exactly that is? Yeah, you become more and more, you want to uh, please the abuser and you get, you get less and less reward. And sometimes there's no reward at all. And you get shamed by the abuser and your self-esteem gets lower. You become more dependent on them. And you might even then want to protect them. So Why? If they're abusing you, why would you want to protect them? Well, because you start to see them as your only source. Once in a while, they'll be nice to you. I see. So you want to, it's like us against the world. And I mean, I experienced that when I was married to an alcoholic too. It's like, because it's not always bad. There's like some good too. So if a relationship's always bad, it's like easier to leave. But yeah. there, there are other things that are good too. Uh, yeah. Narcissists could be very charming and you might have a wonderful lifestyle, but then you don't have the intimacy you want, something like that. So most people contact me, not because they want to leave, but because they want to improve the relationship. They don't want to leave. So doing the steps in the book will empower you. It's really about transforming yourself. And as I said, if you decide to leave, it'll be because you're happy. Yeah, and, I was just thinking that, yeah. And the other thing is when you get happy and you detach, I use the acronym Q-tip, you quit taking things personally and you don't, you build up your self-esteem. That's very important. And don't look to the narcissist for self-nurturing, but that's a life lesson in any relationship. You shouldn't be looking to someone else for your self-esteem. That's other esteem. That's not self-esteem and build a life. So your partner is not the center of your life. That's, that's not healthy either. Either you should have activities, hobbies, friends, you know, other things that you bring to the relationship and that nurture you. So when you start doing this and start reclaiming your power, guess what happens? The narcissist is going to fall apart. Why? They can't control you anymore. They're not, they don't feel like they have power. If they have to control you to have power, then they will you know, be, be at your mercy. The tables turn like a seesaw. And is that the point? Do they leave at that point? Because I could imagine if you're a person that needs power and you don't have that power, you're not going to stay in that situation anymore. You might agree to go to therapy. You might work on the relationship. Uh, Usually they, well, it could be different. Every situation is different. The couple's different. The degree of narcissism is different. By the way, the more aggressive the person is, the uh, worse the narcissism is, even though actually aggression is not one of the criteria. So not all narcissists are like violent or very aggressive. So that's not a condition, but the more- But if you are aggressive. aggressive. Yeah, the, it could be just in words. Um, it's not necessarily tie, tied to physical abuse. So uh, the narcissist might want to leave because they're not getting all- their needs met they're not you're not like praising them and and fawning them all day long 
But I could imagine that, like, because it sounds like narcissists have a little bit of codependency in them, right? Like they. Oh need yeah, I think they people. are. Codependent. Oh, they are codependent. Okay. In my, I mean, I'm the minority opinion, but in my opinion, they're codependent. So. That's it's what it sounds like. So in that aspect of like, I don't, I, I mean, I could imagine that that would be painful on the narcissist side, because on one hand, now you don't have power, but on the other hand, if you're codependent, there must be a part of you that's whose self-esteem is so low that you're like, if I go out there, how am I going to find someone else? Is that yeah. accurate? Well, um, I don't know if they're thinking that, but they will usually try to you know, the, the partner is so afraid of being left by the narcissist. But often they'll go right up to the edge. You know, they'll start, get the moving van. <laughs> they'll make a lot of threats. And then in the end, they'll, they'll find something to back down with. They'll set it up to save face in some way. Like, okay, show me your phone that you weren't, you know, talking to so-and-so. And then if you do, then I, I won't divorce you. Or some the narcissist says this. Yeah, like okay. they'll try to say face to get back in your good graces. And sometimes, like after a breakup, there's something called hover hovering. I have a chapter on that, like how to um, they keep wanting to lure you back in, or they make promises. They might try to seduce you. They might try to be nice and win you back. Um, but if you don't do these steps, it's not going to last too long. You have to keep being persistent with this has to continue. Not suddenly, oh, the romantic, and now I can just go back to being the way it was before. Yeah, it seems exhausting because it seems like as the partner, you're always on your feet. Like there's, you can't really give an inch because they're gonna take a mile. And if you don't have that kind of trust in a relationship, I could imagine that that would be very difficult. It depends on the relationship, your expectations, and again, the degree of narcissism. So some people, um, some partners, like they love the lifestyle and it works for them. You know, they, they don't care that their, let's say their husband is not that involved with the parenting or something. And the partner goes, has their own life or business and friends and it works. Um, and as I said, not all narcissists are aggressive. So they have, uh, and, and some narcissists, they value their, a marriage. So there's some that dating, they just want to go from woman to woman or man to man. And they don't want, it's just a game to them. And I, I talk about dating, like how to spot someone that's doing that and, and love. How do you spot that. somebody who's doing that? Just like a quick blurb on that. Well, it depends how much depth. First of all, you don't want to um, jump into a relationship too quickly because they may be just wanting sex, you know. So uh, get I'm to like, that's all the guys in the Bay Area. What are you talking about? <laughs> really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible up here, but. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, and then if and you start, that's another thing that I point out about power is like um, people that are especially in dating they confuse excitement and anxiety so dating and narcissists can feel very thrilling and they're very exciting and charming you know they can be very seductive and 
and with love bombing, they'll go overboard and flatter you and spend money on you if they have it and do all these things, maybe make promises. It's just like, oh, I finally met the man or the woman of my dreams. And this is the person I've been waiting for all my life. And you get your hopes up. Uh, and But notice how you feel inside. Because do you feel comfortable saying no? Do you feel comfortable asking for what you want? Setting boundaries? Probably not. Sharing your feelings? That's not excitement, that's anxiety. And after a while, that relationship will turn into a Jekyll and Hyde. Once, once a narcissist feels safer, either they'll leave or they'll turn into Jekyll and Hyde. And after idealizing you and saying you're the greatest, now you're the worst. And they start fault finding. Why? So, why? Because. Yeah. Okay. So the, you have to, again, I, I explain all this. They, they, um, because of their shame and low self-esteem, it feeds their ego to win you over to the conquest. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the relationship. It's the chase. In mm -hmm. other words. Mm -hmm. So they like winning. And they can win you over. So, first of all, once they won you, the, the game is over. They won. That was the whole motive, to win. Okay. Not with everyone. Then there's other narcissists that are more pragmatic. And they realize, I want a, a secure marriage. I want someone to raise my children. So, I want someone that's compatible. It's not going to make too many demands on me. So that's a different type of narcissist. But the one that's like the playgirl or the uh, Manahari, yeah. yeah, they're just into, they're interested in the conquest and their ego. And then after they've done that, the interest kind of goes away. So the second reason is they're looking for faults in you and then they kind of destroy the love. Then, you're, then they can't idealize you. So they want someone they can idealize and it's going to look good with them. But now they start criticizing you and now they don't think you reflect well on them. So they end up destroying the object of their love. So they can't, then they can't love you anymore, the perfectionism. So then they might look for somebody new, but they might not. They might just withdraw or continue to be moody and pick on the person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you can't take this personally. You have to have a filter and know who you are and just say, well, that's your opinion, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you need to have a lot of self-confidence to deal with a narcissist. Um, but I don't think that somebody, well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like somebody who would self-confident would be in that. Like, it seems like a oh. more, you know, like. I mean, I think it's really interesting to me how you say in the beginning, they're just worried about winning you over. And then once they have you, they just, you know, start destroying you. And for me, that's really interesting because it, to me, what that says is that they never even think for a minute that you're, you're going to leave them no matter how badly they treat you. Which you is teach them that. You teach them that because you keep accommodating so in the beginning, sets the tone of the relationship. If you don't speak up, if you go along with everything, that's what I'm saying. So if you feel ill at ease, 
that's a, a red flag. Tune into your own feelings. That's not just excitement. Those butterflies are anxiety. And uh, I had a thought I was going to say about, um, oh, codependents do the same thing too, because they fall in love and then they get to know the person because part of it's a reciprocal process, you see, because of their shame and depression underneath, they're looking for someone to pick them up. So they idealize the narcissist. And then they think, oh, this person's wonderful and I, they're great. They have these traits that I don't have. I once went out with a narcissist and he was very rude to the hostess at a restaurant. And I got a chill down my body. And I thought, this is intolerable. So I just, I said to him, I didn't quite know what to say. I said, well, you're showing me another side to yourself. And what did he say? He said, well, some women like it. <laughs> they feel protected. Definitely a narcissist. <laughs> but now how do you, because a lot of people have narcissistic tendencies, but they're not necessarily narcissists. How, what, what is that line there that kind of says, okay, it's not a personality disorder. It's just, you tend to have those tendencies. And then this over here is personality disorder. Well, there's like three core traits. So um, an excessive need for admiration, the grandiosity, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I'm most perfect, and the lack of empathy. Then you need only two more, but those are essential. So that could be a sense of entitlement. Think of another E, lack of empathy, entitlement, like rules don't apply to me. I don't have to wait in line. Uh, I don't have to obey the law. You know, it's it, what's good for me um, doesn't apply to other people. And uh, then exploitativeness. So they may exploit, see people's objects, exploit other people. Another E is envy. They often are envious of others or people think people are envious of them. And then another trait is they like to associate with high status people, high status institutions, go to the best restaurant, wear the best clothes, have the most expensive car, you know, all because they're the greatest and because of the shame underneath. So if I'm around, you know, the best, then I feel like I'm, the, they're accepting me, I'm the best too, it, like it rubs off. So that's, those are some of the other traits. Oh, and like arrogance, of course because they think they're better than other people. Do they really think that they're better or is that kind of like the buffer of like deep down, they feel like, oh, I'm no good. You can, all of these symptoms go to shame, except yeah. the lack of empathy. I, don't th I think that's a developmental issue. Um, it's a brain issue, but all the others are- What do um, you mean by it's a brain issue? Well, you learn to empathize at a certain period in uh, infancy or toddler child development. So if your parents don't teach you how to empathize, you'll grow up without empathy? Well, it's how they, yeah. I'm not a child development specialist, oh, yeah. but it has to do something with that. It could be, um, again, it could be hereditary. Okay. It has something to do with the brain structure. I, I really don't know enough about that. Okay. But there's some people say there's a similarity with autism, you know, that you can think of, uh, of the uh, similarity there. So that's in the brain too. 
Huh. So those are some of the, the, the traits. So they have to have five to qualify. Um, so, well, that's fascinating. And Darlene, I have kept you for like an hour now. Is there anything that you want to add to the end of this podcast? Is there anything yeah. you want viewers to know? Yeah, a few things. First, just to finish on what you were saying. Yeah. Like someone who has, uh, has narcissistic traits, and even if they're not so good on empathy, they can be taught empathy. They call mm -hmm. it subclinical. So you give examples like, well, if this happened to you, how would you feel? So then they can think it through. You know, they can think it through. Uh, and I, So empathy I, is not an emotion, which is so fascinating because I always thought it was an emotion. So the other thing is they have, uh, a lot of narcissists have, high cognitive intelligence. Uh, co they have high uh, cognitive emotional intelligence. Really? Mm -hmm. But That seems counterintuitive. Yeah, but not at an affect level. So, so what happens is it makes them really good um, manipulators because they can figure, figure out other people but they don't, their feelings are not appropriate. They don't. So sometimes you have to explain to them, like uh, having some examples in the book, like you want them to go to the hospital because your parent is dying and they say, I'm busy. And then, but you explain to them why it's important and how it's gonna impact your feelings towards them and your, why it's important for you to be there and why you need them to be there. And then they might go, oh, I understand. Okay, I'll be there. So you might have to take that extra step to explain why it's important to you, why it's important to the relationship, uh, so they get it. Um, what I want to tell people is if you think you're being abused, you probably are. Because it's not all in your head. Yeah. It's not all in your head. So get more information. Don't hide it because the tendency is to keep it secret because it's humiliating to, to know that you're being abused and not talk about it. So get help, uh, get therapy, you know, join a 12-step program like Codependence Anonymous, get a coach or something. As, especially if you're being physically abused, run to uh, uh, get help and support. To get help. There's plenty of help out there. There's some really great shelters. I know in San Francisco, I have a friend who actually runs one of the shelters and it's amazing the work that they do. And you're definitely not alone. I feel like this is something that's common. And I, you know, I, I think I was really excited about this podcast because I think the really interesting thing about narcissism is that it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, but I don't know if it's, if it's always the appropriate term to use. So I think narcissism has really become a part of our culture. Um, and I think maybe we are becoming a little bit more narcissistic, right? With like social media and selfies and True. all of that stuff. So um, yeah, it's just really interesting to kind of go through this and see, you know. Well, and the thing with social media is that there's less connection. It's yes. two-dimensional. So uh, that's one of the damaging things that people aren't having face-to-face -face conversations on the porch, you know, seeing, feeling people. 
but you, and that's why so many people are fighting on Facebook because it's like you can't you're not really having a conversation you know it's it's almost like you're just typing something out and that's it right be careful with text <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah it's it's really interesting the whole social media thing and I feel like it kind of fits a lot of uh the things that you were saying in terms of like you know you see people and i've been guilty of this too where it's like you try to create this perfect life on social media or you take a million pictures of yourself because you want to find that one that looks amazing you know um would you are you doing that though are you is there a feeling of inadequacy inside so look at your the motive for your behavior say yeah i mean i think it's a combination of things you know i was actually having this conversation with my friend yesterday about you know like i said like i grew up in the 80s and the 90s and back then the we were talking about how skinny we were back then because you know it was all about being skinny like we grew up with the cape mosses um and you know just how much pressure there was to be perfect as a girl and that's something that's really hard to unlearn i think you know it wasn't just a familial thing it no, felt like social. a society yeah a social yeah. thing so and and even to this day i feel like you can you know we're doing a lot of great work with the me too movement and all of the stuff that's coming out but I feel like under the surface, there is still that layer of, you know, that standard for women of like, okay, you know, look good, be perfect, make sure the perfect words come out of your mouth, because if you don't, they're going to rip you apart on social media if you're a celebrity or whatever. So it's it's still there. It's still brewing underneath. So I, I am definitely trying to learn that inferiority for sure. I want to encourage people to follow my blog at whatiscodependency.com. And I've written a lot on self-esteem and research on young girls. They've done uh, some Dove uh, back the funding for it. Uh, girls' self-esteem starts to decline at nine years old. And all this princess stuff with little girls, I think is like really terrible <laughs> personally, but um, that's just in my opinion because it, anyway. So yeah, it makes them focus on their looks. And, you know, I mean, I know with my two youngest nieces, I went through this and they're really smart, you know, but like they saw like Frozen and whatever, and they would dress up in the costumes and then they would be like, you know, they're five, six years old. They're like, am I the prettiest princess? You know, and it, it I'm like, oh my God, this is starting again. This happened when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So so uh, this book is up on Amazon now. Uh, there's links to everything on my website, all my books, and uh, on my media page, I have a lot of podcasts. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. People can find me all over. I have a YouTube channel. So And I'm going to go ahead and put uh, all your links below on this podcast as well so that people can contact you. Darlene, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate having you here. It's been fun. Thank you very much. And please come back because I would love, I mean, this barely scratches the surface of what I want to know. So I would love to have you back. Oh, thank you very much.